Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Uh, We're so glad that each person is here uh, with us this morning. Thanks for coming out. Um, We'd like to shout out to Fostoria community and also to Bluffton. Um, I don't know if y'all realize this, but we're kind of a family of churches. We do this thing together, and uh, God has been blessing us in a remarkable way. Um, we're, a, we're a family. Just in the last uh, several months, we've had uh, lots and lots of people who were baptized at the Fosteria community. And then just in the last couple of weeks, there have been two uh, new people who've crossed the line of faith, people from outside the church, people we didn't know before, uh, who've made a commitment to Jesus for their life. And it's just, it's exciting to see what God is doing. And because we're part of Lighthouse, we're part of uh, all that is going on through the family of churches here. My name is Larry Sewell. I'm one of the uh, elders here this morning. And uh, this week we're finishing an eight-week series uh, from the first part of the book of Revelation. It's called Revealed. Um, It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that's recorded for us by uh, John, probably John the Apostle, uh, for us to read. Now this prophecy is the very last book in the book of Revelation, or in the book of the uh, New Testament, so it's easy to find. It's interesting to me that when you read the book of Revelation, it's very different than how it's often described by people. You know, they talk about 666. And they talk about the timeline, and they try to figure out where they fit on the timeline, and what's going on with Russia, and this and that, and all these other things. When the reality is, the book of Revelation starts with a a clear description of Jesus Christ. And then it's followed up by these seven little letters to churches that expose to us the heart of God for the church. That's something that's really important to God. Um, Lighthouse exists within the sovereign plan of God and this big timeline that he has established from the ages. The Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah, I've been reading those recently, uh, next to the prophecy that we call the book of Revelation. And it's uncanny to see the parallelism between uh, something that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus and what's prophesied in the book of Revelation, things to come. In fact, it gives me great confidence Because if things that were prophesied all that time ago have come true, it gives me confidence that we can trust what the book of Revelation says about things that are to come. But it also reminds me, as I've read these two books next to each other, uh, the character of God. For instance, uh, God at his very core hates sin. He hates when we go off in, in personal uh, self-direction, uh, something we call sin here at Lighthouse, uh, define it that way. And God hates that at his core. It's something that, that he doesn't like at all. But on the flip side, there's genuine hope. There's genuine intimacy available to each person who chooses to follow God. You can go to the book of Revelation, and you can hear and see what the future holds. You can see that in in clear language. Uh, A lot of time is dedicated to what's called the people of this world, people who live in this world with no knowledge of God, whatever, and it doesn't turn out well for them at all. But also, at the very end of Revelation, you can see extraordinary descriptions 
of what happens to believers at the end. The new heaven and the new earth. He will be our God. We will be his people. We'll walk with God for eternity in this intimate relationship. But the book of Revelation focuses on Jesus Christ. It centers around him and the hope that flows uh, to those who know God in an intimate way. Today we're going to read Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 uh, through the end of the chapter. This is the seventh little letter. Uh, It's written to an actual historical church. Uh, But in the day, these letters were written, there were no printing presses. They were passed between churches, right? That's how they learned, okay? They passed these letters. So in a sense, this letter, uh, these letters from Revelation, they're written to us for us to take advantage of to uh, read and hear and understand the heart of God. This is what it says. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's a reference to Jesus. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and and white garments so that you may may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve for your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Uh, Creator God, we come before you with thanksgiving and joy for uh, your presence in our lives. And I pray uh, just one thing, this thing, the thing I always pray, uh, and that's this, that you would open uh, my heart, the heart of each person in this room, our minds, our hearts, our spirits, uh, that we would see you and we would hear your voice and respond to that in a remarkable way. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. Now I have just four uh, observations, four points uh, from this passage today. The first is this, don't miss God's emotion. Now it's important to understand that, that God sees us. Nothing can be hidden from God and he reacts to everything in life consistent with his character. That's who God is. He acts consistent with himself. Consider verse 15 and 16, I know your works, You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Think about how graphic that language is. I was talking to Pastor Matt, and he said, I lost my mind there for a minute. I was just thinking, what does it mean for God to spit? Okay, God God is spitting out of his mouth. God is not some stoic figure in heaven detached from us. 
Okay, he's not some historic, this, this figure up afar, kind of observing things detached from human emotion. Instead, the Bible speaks of, with a great array of different emotions, human described emotions that God has. For instance, God is angry with sin. God demonstrates love. God becomes sad. In fact, Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Um, God had, uh, Jesus had compassion when he saw the people in Jerusalem milling around like people, like, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion, okay? All these are human emotions that God shares. Uh, we have the same kind of emotions. You can bank on this. God feels. God sees you and God knows. Now, I'd like to illustrate this uh, with a very real illustration. Um, and it's this. I'm a coffee drinker. I know. It's, uh, I'm an addicted, I'm, a, I'm an addict, I can't, I can't help myself. It's the first step, right? My name is Larry Sewell. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm addicted to coffee. It hasn't always been this way, though. Um, I didn't start drinking coffee until I was seven years old. My, <laughs> we were on vacation, we'd go down to Virginia, and my grandma had a little house and we would stay with her. And in the back of the house there was a little kitchen. And I'd get up early in the morning and go out in the kitchen where my grandma was making breakfast for the family. The rest of the family was asleep, and we'd drink coffee together. Okay, I'd make instant coffee, and I'd probably like cream and sugar and mix that thing up. And it was mostly about being with grandma, right? Okay, but I, that's where I learned to drink coffee in grandma's kitchen when I was seven years old. Now, I tried to quit once, and it was about 25 years ago. And has anybody ever tried to quit and to get those headaches that, like, you, okay, you, you're all addicts too, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. So, so I traveled then down to Columbia. We had a business joint venture down there to sell tires. And the first morning, we're in the garden, a little restaurant inside the hotel. It's unsafe outside, so the restaurants are in the hotel. You know, in the, and so uh, the guy comes with the big French press. You know what those are? And they push that plunger down, okay? And you can smell the aroma of this coffee, right? And I just quit, right? And so they're, and he's pouring this coffee. And it's like, I don't speak Spanish. But I'm pretty sure that guy knew I wanted that coffee. Okay? And so, so, yeah, it was like coffee Mecca. It was the best coffee I've ever drank in my life. And I fell off the wagon so hard that day. And I have vowed I will never, I will never stop drinking coffee again. So, and so far, I have been true to my word. I drink it black, and it has to be hot. In fact, this is, how, this is how weird it is. I actually heat the cup up with hot water before I put the coffee in, okay, so it stays really hot. Okay, that's really bad. It's really, I know, I need help. <laughs> the other day, I have a reading, like we have like a patio, right, I sit over, looking over the backyard, and I, go, I read back there, that's where I like to pray. And I had left a coffee cup there from the night before, half full of coffee on the stand next to my reading chair. And I went out in the morning, and I'm reading, I reached over there and grabbed that cup and drank a big gulp of coffee. It's like I spit it right back in the cup. I went out into the kitchen. I like, with authority, I threw that thing down the drain, and I got some hot coffee to drink. Right? It was disgusting. Now, I know people drink iced coffee. I don't understand it, but I understand that you know, they do it. I see people come in here, and they got the ice cubes in there. And, I, and my daughter, drink, she thinks it's good, so that's okay. Iced coffee is fine if that's for you. Coffee is meant to be hot. Okay, coffee is maybe iced. Okay, but this is the reality. Lukewarm coffee is disgusting. Okay, think about cold mashed potatoes. I mean, really, temperature temperature matters, and this is the point. Okay, Jesus is revealing something to us. 
the emotion of God, okay, towards lukewarm faith, okay? God's perspective is this. A lukewarm Christian life is disgusting in front of God. He spits it out of his mouth. How much more graphic can you get? He spits it out of his mouth. That's what he thinks of lukewarm faith. Now, this passage is focused on actions. It's not focused on intentions, hidden faith, tomorrow's plan, none of that. This is focused on what we do, because what we do in our life reveals what's going on in our hearts. We are called to something much higher than a lukewarm life. God calls us up to that, and that's something we can respond to. Sometimes you just have to say what the Bible says in great clarity. God has said it for us to read, to learn from, to understand. Uh, here's some definitions of what lukewarm might mean. The Amplified Bible says it this way, spiritually useless. That's one definition. Another, indifferent to the influences of God in our lives. Here's another one. Unaware of our need for God in our daily life. Maybe it's that person that says, I believe in God. It just doesn't make any difference in how I live. Okay? Maybe prayerlessness, disinterest in Scripture, an awareness that people around us are lost and separated from God. Um, maybe it's the person uh, for whom prayer is just a last resort. And if I get in enough trouble, then I pray, but not a, a constant daily thing. You know, the normal Christian life, what we would consider hot, not lukewarm, but hot, is this. The Bible's clear that spirit-led faith is based on an understanding of who Jesus is and that he gave his life for us. And that, that draws us to repentance, not feeling bad, but, but turning from sin, turning toward God. It's a decision we make to follow God. That's what repentance is. It's a decision to go a different way. The first time we do that, we call it that saying yes to Jesus for the first time. But that leads to new life new life in Christ. It's, it, it leads to a supernatural transformation, something that's going on as we, we study the truth of Scripture and the Holy Spirit is working in our life and, and we're becoming changed. Paul says it this way, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things are passing away and everything is becoming new. That's what happens in a hot Christian life when a person is purposely walking with God. As I was working um, and thinking about this uh, teaching, um, I came across a story on the internet, uh, actually a Facebook friend, uh, I know the husband, I don't know the wife, uh, we had ridden motorcycles together, and I didn't know this story until I read it online. But she says this, 21 years ago, our son was in an accident. As we drove to the hospital, we didn't know if he was going to live or if he was going to die. For eight long days, we waited in the room, in the waiting room, and by his bedside, hoping and praying that he would wake up. It was excruciating. And I remember this numbness that just kind of descended on me. Um, we were crying, we were waiting, there was uncertainty. And then she says this, in many ways, before the accident, we were living as functional atheists. These are believers, they're church people, right? Functional atheists, depending on ourselves for everyday life, not often consulting God for guidance in the challenges of marriage and family, trying to control everything ourselves. Then she says, he had a purpose for us in this story. He wanted to draw us close to him and to learn to depend on him. Imagine this, 
Creator God, the creator of everything, wanted a relationship with us. And this was a turning point in our life, our faith, our marriage, and our family. Most of all, she says, I remember how God invaded our lives with the most life-changing things happening. I remember that while we're not in control, we could do nothing to save our child. He held Micah firmly in his grip, and whether he lived or whether he died, God was good, and we belonged to him. A remarkable story of this tragedy, and, and her coming to the, to the realization that she was a lukewarm Christian. She had been a functional atheist. She had been depending on herself for everything and completely missing the point of, of consulting with God and letting God into her life. They were just doing what everybody does, doing the best you can, living your life the best you can. But the end of the story is remarkable. This, this story of God invading her life uh, and, in this, and this new willingness that she had as a child of God to depend on him. And today, if you go and read the story a little further, um, she's thankful. She's thankful for the whole thing, not because of the tragedy, but because of what the tragedy did to them in their walk with God. Lukewarm faith is functional atheism. It's claiming that God is God and yet living as if God doesn't exist. It's indifference towards God. It's spiritually useless. Now, it is easy for me to see lukewarmness in other people, right? It's always easier to see things like that in other people rather than seeing it in myself. But I have to be honest, I've spent lots of years in my life where I was neither hot nor cold, you know? Um, disengaged from the eternal, living, the life, living life the best I could as if this life was all there is. For me, it was focus on work, it was focus on family, um, always thinking that I would engage God in a more significant way at a later time. Always thinking there was a better time down the road. And in effect, lots of years were wasted in what I would call functional atheism. I think Jesus uses this word picture of God spitting to grab our attention. You know, it's just like his emotion just flows through. Living as a functional atheist, living as a Christian, but living as if God didn't exist, makes God sick. That's the first point. Second point is this, don't be confused about true riches. These people thought they were rich, and yet God was saying something completely different than that. Verse 17, you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These folks thought they were without spiritual need because they didn't have any material need. They had money and they had stuff. And so they thought they were okay. History says, in fact, that this uh, church, this area, had a major, major earthquake. And the church, or the, the people of Laodicea, they were able to rebuild their town without dependence on Rome for money. They had it all. They had all kinds of money. They had all kinds of wealth. They were content. They were self-satisfied, and yet they were self-deceived. You could say that they had no idea what true riches really even were. They had no idea what that was. This is probably the equivalent of a person with a good job, with benefits, and a 401k, and a new car. You know, everything seems to be fine, yet 
from an eternal standpoint, from a true riches standpoint, we see bankruptcy. You know, they don't have any of that at all. They're missing that completely. It's odd to me that in this particular church, Jesus doesn't praise them or condemn them for anything. If you read back through all of the seven churches, I kind of made a list. I went through, what are the things that pleased Jesus as he saw these churches? And this is what's on my list. Hard work, patient endurance in the face of suffering, faithfulness to God in all things, clear doctrine in a world of false religion and false ideas, obedience to the truth when other people fell back, Pushing back hard against evil. Those are all things that Jesus praised these different churches in Asia for. Then there were criticisms also. For instance, he criticized the church at Ephesus because they had abandoned their first love. He criticizes a couple of the churches because of tolerance of evil. Evil people, evil teaching, evil deeds. Okay, there's praise and there's criticism as as God is exposing his heart for the church by reading across these letters, right? Right? But this church, Laodicea, is neither praised nor condemned for anything. And you know, these people, are, they're lukewarm, okay? He's already spit these people out. What's going on? Why doesn't Jesus say something very specific to them? And I think it's this. Why would you say something about their good and their bad if these people simply can't hear? They no longer can hear. Why would you waste your breath? I was going to make a joke about talking to teenagers, but I decided not to. (laughs) These people are indifferent. They don't care. So why would I tell them something important when they can't hear me anyway? They're spiritually deaf. We see this uh, sort of description in other places in in the Scriptures. In Mark 8, for instance, Jesus, uh, it says he, he sighed deeply in his spirit as he's listening to the Pharisees. They're, they're pushing him, saying, you know, do, a, do a miracle to prove that you know, you're, you're the Son of God. And, and he's sighing deeply in his spirit. But you know, the disciples were the same. You know, if you, as you read along after the feeding of the 5,000, you know, they had hard hearts. They had eyes that uh, didn't see and ears that didn't hear. Um, they were there for the feeding of the 5,000. They saw the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, and yet they didn't quite understand who they were with. They were, they were kind of blinded to that. What a picture. God uses feeding. He uses uh, healings of uh, like, uh, eyesight, things like that, to expose our need for spiritual understanding, to expose our need for, for spiritual sight and, and sustenance, everything that we need in life. These people in Laodicea, they couldn't see their spiritual reality. They were blind to that. They were living in some kind of a a fog, a darkness, unaware of their spiritual condition. They were content with all the things that they had in this life. They had stuff, but they were missing out on true riches. That's where they were. Verse 18, Jesus gives counsel. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can be rich, and white garments so that you can clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve for your eyes that you may see. They had mistaken money and stuff for spiritual wealth. And and Jesus is saying, what you need, you need gold from me. You need the real deal, not false riches. Somehow they had overlooked the need for purity, for spiritual sincerity, 
They're exposed and don't even know it. They'd become self-deceived and blind to spiritual health. And the problem with spiritual blindness, it's impossible to see if you have it. You know, you need help from outside, someone to help you be able to look into that. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Dave was talking about self-deception right here. And he talked about Jesus offering spiritual life and offering true riches. Well, the passage here now takes a, a turn. And Jesus goes from calling out this church, okay, and now he's going to be the teacher. Okay, he's going to give us some information to help us understand and navigate through this circumstance that this church found itself in. The third point is this. Don't misunderstand both the purpose and the motive of God's discipline. Okay, don't understand, or misunderstand the purpose and the motive of God's discipline. Verse 19, those I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. What Jesus is saying here is get after it. Repent. That is, change your mind about those things. Change your life and decide that you're going to follow God hard. Repentance isn't feeling guilty. Repentance is changing direction. Uh, You can live on the promises of God here. If we confess um, our sin, God is faithful and just. He forgives our sin. He cleanses unrighteousness. He cleanses our hearts. He draws us to himself. You can bank on the promises of God, all the promises of God. We don't talk much about discipline from God in the church today. We don't talk about that. But you can bank on this, that God will work discipline into your life for his good for his glory and for our good. You can bank on that because that's in the character of God to, make, uh, to give us everything that's good. And he can't give us that if we're walking away from him. He just can't do it. Discipline is not punishment for sin. It's reproof meant to bring us back to God. And you got to see the motive here, right? Those whom he loves, he disciplines. God doesn't discipline us because he's mad at us. He disciplines us because he wants us to walk with him, knowing that that's the most important thing that he can do. How would it be, loving would it be if God just let us go our own way? That wouldn't be loving at all, right? Nothing lasting and good ever comes from outside of God's care for us. All the good stuff comes from him. So get after it, okay? Repent aggressively. Turn back to God. Learn from the discipline that God brings into our life. Those are the charges that Jesus makes. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's a passage uh, starting in verse 7 about the discipline of God. It's talking about discipline. It says this, that when God disciplines us, he's treating us as sons. For what son is there whom the father would not discipline in this life? If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, it says, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. How much more shall the Father of spirits, um, shall we be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For, for discipline for us seems, um, for a short time, um, it, seems, it seems difficult. Yet, it brings uh, good and it brings his holiness into our life. Jesus is implying here that a lack of repentance and a walking in our own way 
will bring, invite discipline from God into our lives as he tries to draw us back. That's what it implies. That's what it says. If you sense God's discipline in your life, it's probably happening. It's probably real. God disciplining you for your, his glory and for your good. So Jesus would say this, run toward it, uh, repentance. Run and let the discipline of God drive us to holiness, to, to the change, to walk with him. Because without that, we'll never really see God. We'll really never know him. The fourth point is this, don't miss God's personal invitation in this passage. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now this is a letter to churches, okay? This isn't a letter to people that are outside the church. Um, this is a letter to people who are, have become self-sufficient, who have become indifferent to God, even though they call themselves Christians. It's interesting in this picture, you can picture that Jesus standing in front of the door, knocking, right? On what side of the door is Jesus? He's on the outside. Yeah, he's on the outside. You can see that in the, in the passage. This letter to Christians is basically saying this, let him in, let him in. Jesus is standing at the door of our heart and he's offering something. What is he offering us? What's he offering us as he stands there and knocks at the door of our heart? Now, he's not offering a substitute like legalism or religion. That's clearly not it. I don't think he's... Uh, inviting us to feel guilty and feel bad about ourselves? I don't think that's it at all. This is not an invitation to get all psyched up and do a lot of stuff. It's not that either. What is, what is it that Jesus is offering to Christians? What's offered here? I think it's this. I think Jesus is offering intimacy with God. He's offering friendship and closeness, and relationship. That's what Jesus is offering. Not obligation, but closeness with God. In America, we eat to get full, you know, with hot coffee next to it. But in Jesus' day, it was different. Okay, In Jesus' day, it was more important who you ate with than what was on the menu. It was about relationship with people. What Jesus is saying here is he is inviting himself into our world okay, to sit with us for dinner. That's the picture that we have in Revelation 3. What do you think it would feel like to be at rest with God? To be at peace with yourself? To be in intimate relationship with your Creator? That's what's being offered here. He's offering us a relationship with him, a life transformation changing way to live. In John chapter 10, it says this, the thief comes but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and that you might have that abundantly. So this is the question, what should you do if you feel that your life is not that hot? 
I've been in that position, thinking that through. What do you do if you feel that way? You're feeling a little lukewarm. It's like that coffee you want to throw out. Well, I think here's some, some uh, insights from the passage itself. Don't turn to a substitute. You know, don't turn to legalism, because you know, religion will actually push you further and further from God. Obligation isn't going to help you here. What you should do, maybe, is lean in to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Okay? Aggressively repent to turn away from and turn toward God in any area of life where you're walking sideways from God. Lean into everything said in the Bible. Read it and study it and know it. Isaiah says it this way, uh, seek him with your whole heart. Seek him while he may be found. There's a prayer that's on your blue connection card this week. You can take a look at that and maybe check that box. Uh, Maybe start with this prayer. It's a prayer I pray very, very often. Holy Spirit, please show me how to see and how to hear and how to respond to you. As I pray that prayer and I read scripture, God speaks to me through his word. Okay, He speaks to me through prayer, and God answers that sort of prayer. This is a message not just for believers who feel a little cold, but it's also it's a, it's a, it's a prayer for people maybe who are outside the family of faith. They're not sure what we're really talking about. The way to find God is to seek him with your whole heart. The greatest need of the human heart is found, uh, is, is, uh, is, is intimacy with God. It's the greatest need of the human heart. And there is no substitute for that. The greatest need. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, that name may be familiar to you, says uh, in a little paragraph this way, it would seem that our Lord finds the desire, our desire is not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with a drink, and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant to have a holiday at the sea. A complete change of perspective toward intimacy with God. And then finally in Isaiah chapter 55, a passage Fritz spoke about here several weeks, maybe two months ago. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. This morning, like always, we'll have uh, prayer partners in the corners of the room. Uh, They love to pray with people in a confidential way. You can pray with them one-on-one and uh, talk to God together. Um, I'd like to pray uh, for all of us, and then I'd like you to pray either with a prayer partner or in prayer in your seat today, and maybe ask that question. Hey, God, um, can you help me understand and see? I need help from the outside. Would you lead me by your Holy Spirit into your presence? So let me pray for us right now, and then the prayer partners are here, and they'll pray for you if you'd like to do that. Let's pray. God, I pray at this moment that the presence of your Holy Spirit would be very real for each person. 
and that you would draw forward each person into prayer, whether they pray in their seats or whether they pray uh, with a prayer partner. I pray that you would draw every person in this room to prayer right now. And I pray all of this through Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.